0: Hello, and welcome to the Ferry and Fantasy Course, episode 35. This time, Professor Olson's class will cover the modern young adult fantasy novel, Garth Nix's Sabriel, from the prologue to chapter 5.
1: So, there. Uh, uh, on one hand, I am partly tempted, as usual, to go back and uh, try to say some of the things that I kind of wanted to say, or talk about some of the things that I wanted to talk about last time and didn't get a chance to. But I think I'll resist the temptation because if I, I could do that for at least another whole class and then I'd just be in a worse place when we get to the end of Sabriel. So I think I'm going to truly just stick to the schedule and move on to Sabriel this time, though that's difficult. Now, so I want to start off asking, uh, how many of you have read this before?
0: <laughs> oh, wait, no.
1: Okay, okay. So, um, and I, I knew that one or two of you were pretty excited about this. So um, I, I'm, this is actually pretty new to me. I am, uh, I am much less familiar with this uh, than I am with most of the rest of them. In fact, I just read this last summer for the first time myself, but I was really interested in it, really impressed with it, and thought of it right away when I was thinking about I wanted um, a recent work, like within the last ten years, um, to end the class with. And uh, my, my second choice, by the way, if we hadn't read this, my second choice would have been Neil Gaiman's Stardust, um, which was a close second. It was a really tough decision. In the end, um, in the end I like this one even better because, um, well, I just it, coming at the end of the, the string of books that we've been reading and the kinds of things that we've been focusing on, I thought it would just be really interesting to read this uh, in that light. But you know, if we had another two weeks, I would have added I would I would definitely let it start us. Anyway, um, what do you notice? What are your thoughts? You know, we are now in twenty-first century literature, we are now well into you know the the place where fantasy literature is now well established as a mainstream subculture. Um and I say both of those two words carefully. Mainstream, in the sense of many people reading it and everybody recognizing it, but subculture, in the sense that it is not given equal billing uh, with other more serious cultural experiences. Um, so, but nevertheless, sort of, you know, we, we, we are now where we are now. Um, what do you think? What, <coughs> what stuff do you notice, especially coming from the works we've been reading and the kinds of things that we've been looking at? That we've been interested in, and that these stories seem to have been interested as we've been looking through these magic and fairy stories from the Middle Ages forward. Um, what what issues seem to still be of interest here in this book? Um, new ways in which old questions are being asked. Any of those kinds of things. What do you think, Liz? What do you think? Yeah. yeah, the division between the Old Kingdom and Celestiere and, and um, is definitely the, the thing that first suggested it to me as a, a work that would be cool to end this class with, because we do have a, a terra cognita and a magical realm, um, and in this case, a literal wall in between them. Um, that hasn't usually been the case. Um, but, uh, but anyway, there's certainly that, that kind of contrast between the magical world and the non-magical <clears> world, <way, throat> and somewhat different rules applying between the two of them, um, is definitely, I agree, a consistency. Uh, Emily, what were you thinking about? Okay. Same thing. Go. Yeah.
0: Um, so, branching uh, from the idea of the physical wall. It seems that at times in the terracognita section, there's sort of a sliding scale between being hyper-aware of uh, of the old kingdom and sort of and you know, and suppressing it almost, out of a desire to maintain stability or, or, um, or control.
1: Yeah. We don't spend much time uh, in the first chapter in Wyverley College, her, her school, um, but enough to get a little bit of a glimpse of the kind of peculiar culture there. Um, on the one hand, it is an emphatically mundane situation. It's a traditional boarding school But quietly, they teach magic there too. Right? Uh, They have they have a magic instructor, and also you notice the other subjects that she takes. Some of them are very normal, but in addition to charter magic, what else is a little unusual that she studies? Did you notice English? (laughs) English, (laughs) yeah. True, true. That is a little weird. That is a little deviant. I agree. (laughs) The fighting arts? The fighting arts, yeah, that was my favorite. That was my favorite thing. Yeah, yeah, fighting arts. So they still, uh, apparently, they they secretly teach them magic. They openly teach them, I don't know what, sword fighting, I guess? (laughs) But but the the fighting arts, I mean, they're like ninja skills. (laughs) How to verbally abuse your husband. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's like (laughs) etiquette. Plus ninja skills, right? So that you know you pretty much got everything covered. Uh, uh, I mean, it's this it sounds like an excellent finishing school, doesn't it? I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd send my daughter there. That sounds great. Um, plus, again, quietly, not not quite secretly, because remember what uh, what we're told the headmaster thinks about this. Is the head, is is the headmaster is the headmistress embarrassed yes. about the the you know magic side of the curriculum? Is this something she tries to hush up?
0: Well, she doesn't promote it, definitely. She definitely kind of just, okay, stay over there with your, your magic stuff, and I'm going to do this stuff over here. You you do your thing, and stay away.
1: Yeah, it's discreet. Right? She's discreet about it. But she doesn't exactly conceal it. Why? Why was not she... Do- because there's money in it? Yeah, because people pay extra to send their girls there to get trained in magic. Which means, obviously, there must be some form of discreet advertising about this, right? Um, So it's, uh, but it's very polite, right? It's very quiet, it's very hush-hush. And as I said, I think the college there, especially that, that, that passage that I'm talking about where we're sort of, uh, learning about Wyverly College sort of from the perspective, not from the dialogue, but sort of from the perspective of the headmistress as she's reflecting on Sabrio and Sabriel's strange, strangely pallid father. And, um, you'll notice she, Sabriel, has lived there, this is a boarding school, but she has lived there continuously. She doesn't go home uh, for the holidays. Uh, She doesn't go home for the summer holiday. Um, She stays year-round. She has not left that school. I mean, apparently she's taken some trips here and there, but she hasn't gone home since she arrived when she was five, and she's 18 now and ready to graduate. Um... And she's at that point where she's, you know, thinking about going to university or not going to university. And, uh, and it, it's beginning to look increasingly like she's just going to go straight into the workforce. But um, that is her own particular line of work, um, where the pay is not great, but some of the benefits are okay. Um, uh, that is, what is her job? What's, the Yeah yeah it's it's a it's a it's a niche market um, <laughs> she's an anti necromancer you see this is true this is this can be confusing I know at the beginning um, there are two major sets of well, sets—that's not quite the right word. Anyway, there, anyway, there are two basic kinds of magic, right? What are the two basic kinds of magic? Yeah, charter
2: magic and
1: free magic. Charter magic and free magic. And what do we know about them? What 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 are we told about what? What are we told, and what can we? What are we brought to understand? Um, and it's. I'm going to to call on you, Taylor. But <laughs> before I call on you, <laughs> uh, those of you who have read the whole of Horson Trilogy, um, try not to refer to things that we learn in later books that's just not quite fair. Um, as much as In You Lies stick to what we have been told in these first five chapters. With that caution, Tara? <laughs> I don't think this will give anything away, but uh, cherry magic is made by um,
2: manipulating the uh, the um, written language um, that
1: basically makes up the fabric of the ordered universe. Yeah. So. Charter magic is all about the symbols, right? Right. In, in the casting of it. Um, there seems to be the uttering of words involved, but there's always the forming of symbols, either in writing on stuff, like we see symbols on the of the charter <coughs> symbols on the wall, charter symbols on her sword, um, or also even just the drawing of the symbols in the air with 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 the fingertips, right? So it's all about Writing, writing is very much involved, which, which makes sense, right? What do you make of the name Charter Magic? Why is it called Charter Magic, or rather, what does that name suggest or evoke, Matt?
3: Uh, in, I think it evokes the old, the old idea of the charter town, but basically, it exists by permission of some more powerful entity.
1: Yeah, I, by permission, by agreement. I mean, a, a charter is like a contract, right, between two parties. Um, and it, that it sets, especially when the opposite, or not exactly necessarily the opposite, but the other category of magic is free magic. Uh, there's this sense, of course, we we have lots of positive associations with the word free, um, several different kinds of very positive associations <laughs> with the word free, but the free magic seems to be very dangerous. Um, and we only it's only referred to a couple times in these first few chapters, but when it is referred to. It's, uh, it seems to be sketchy. Charter magic is the, is the magic that they teach at Charter magic is the magic that the, even the soldiers on the perimeter have learned. Not all of them, but many of them. Um, charter magic is what Sabriel knows. Charter magic is what Abhorsen knows that we see him using in the first scene. Um, that seems to be the good kind. It's, so agreement, contract. Order? Go ahead, man. The
3: password you used to talking about is that I think it's interesting, it doesn't seem so much as a division between good and evil, as a division between order and chaos. Yeah. Charter magic is clearly all about order and organization and structure, and free magic basically sounds like you anarchist magic.
1: Yeah, uh, there is definitely <laughs> a free in the sense of anarchical. Definitely seems to be, especially contrasted with the charter um, and charter magic. So yeah, that seems to be one of the primary uh, dynamics in the magical in the the. I was about to say in the magical world. That's not quite right. I don't mean just the old kingdom. I mean in in the structure of magic. Yeah, George. Um, when Samuel is used mother's bells,
2: <coughs> she um, the the magistrates object the a charioteer the bells and the handle. That prevents free magic, not governed by the church which basic, which fits along very much with what we're saying, that there's, there's free magic which is uncontrolled, wild, um, does what it will, what, what, whatever it is controlling it, whatever it will, what it wills, it sort of wills. and children magic has these rules, these, gov- these it's governed.
1: Yes. And we know that the bells, the abortion's bells, do use free magic as well as charter magic. If you have not... And I, I, I was joking with a couple of people at the beginning of class I'm not going to quiz you on which bell does what uh, <laughs> on the final exam but, uh, but if you remember the, the, the scene where she describes she names each of the bells and, and describes what they do um, you can see already um, the, the way in which they're connected with free magic they're, they're tricksome they're unpredictable um, if you use them, you can never be quite, some of them especially, some of them more than others, you can never be quite sure what they're going to do and what effect they're going to have. They can get away from you, they can affect you instead of, uh, uh, instead of the thing that you're trying to affect. It's, it's not under control in the way that charter magic might not work all the time. It might be weaker or stronger, it might fail. Uh, but it's not just going to run away and do something crazy and unexpected. We see, for instance, when she draws the diamond of protection around herself um, in front of the broken charter stone, that the one that's closest to the stone is really weak. Right? She doesn't. She, she doesn't do a good job there. She knows the protection is weakest in that spot and weaker than it should be. Um, but again, it's not a question of like, and who knows what might happen, right? No, she knows <laughs> what will happen. It's charter magic. Um, the bells. The bells are different. They function differently. They're tools, they're still the tools of the apportion, but they're uh, not quite safe, um, because there, there is definitely free magic involved with them too. Um, where else do we see charter magic and charter symbols? Very important. Um,
0: well, one of them was Sabriel, Sabriel? Um, Sabriel, yeah. Sabriel, um, her baptism and naming.
1: Um, yeah what's yeah. done by a charter mage. Yep, yeah. yep, yeah. the baptism. Um, how does the baptism work? It's a really interesting ritual. It's the. It's, and and, and I, our attention is drawn to it by the fact that this is essentially our introduction to charter magic. We have no idea what that phrase even means uh, until this scene in the prologue where we're shown it. How does it work? What happens? Steph? Um,
0: the charter mage um, has this bottle of liquid and he... Um, calls forth like, things that were, things that are, things that will be, things have pa- that have passed on. He touches it, I, b- I believe the order is correct, to the ground, and then to the mark on his head, and then pours it on the child and the mark is transferred to her.
1: Yeah. Now what do we do with that? What is what is this suggesting? Uh, the, the mark is transferred to her forehead. right? What, what was the mark that was on his forehead that's transferred? It's a charter mark. How, how, how's it there? What is it made of? Ash. So he's drawn a charter symbol in ash on his own forehead. And that is the symbol that is transferred to her forehead. It, it, it transferred in ash? Is that, is that what we're talking about? Like it's redrawn or something? What's the charter mark like on the baby's forehead if the baptism is successful? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a magical mark that's permanent. What do they do, the soldiers, when they... Uh, Arrest her, basically, on the border. It's a wonderful moment because she's screwing around, right? She gets this one, this one sub officer who doesn't really get what's going on. And what assumption does she make? You remember that scene? She conjures her papers out of her bag by charter magic, um, and then she's about to do something else. Why is she? What's she doing? Why is she doing this, man? Uh, it seems she's mostly agreed. she thinks it's funny to rest of the most. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly the kind of tone of it. Yeah, that she, he doesn't really know what's going on, so she's kind of, she, you know, he's going to be kind of bewildered. He doesn't understand magic at all. He doesn't get this. This will be funny. I wonder how he's going to react if I do this next thing. And what happens? Um, they assume that if she's using, uh, Turner Magic that
3: freely, then, um, she's probably, uh, something dead that is in disguise
1: yeah all of a sudden all the soldiers come down with it and not like just with their guns and stuff but you know they're all of them about to to cast Charter Magic at her and she's like oh okay actually I see A. this is not funny here I guess (laughs) Uh, and B. um, you people are not who I was assuming you were Um, which is a bunch of ignorant people who don't understand anything about magic that I can therefore just kind of screw with Um, and she stands down very quickly. What do they do to her? How do they confirm that she's not... Well, What are the things they're afraid of? Something dead or... uh, Yeah, like somebody's hand which would be something dead but that is either something like one of the greater dead something which is actually working itself something which is being sent by one of the dead or... A majorly corrupted charter mark. Yes, a majorly corrupted charter mark, um, or even just a construct like a free magic, a free magic creature. Um, This is you know when they say, like for instance, when the colonel's talking about their patrols, right? And he's saying, well, we don't meet any people, not any real people, (laughs) real normal living people. They usually meet dead things or constructs or things like that. Um, How do they confirm? That she is not any of those things. She's not dead. That she's not. Uh, she's not a hand or a construct. That she's not. Uh, she's not got a corrupted charter mark.
0: She and the colonel touch each other's marks.
1: Yeah, they, he he touches the charter mark on her forehead, and it glows, and he can see the charter mark and realize, okay, this is a legit charter mark. Um, <laughs> um, and so, therefore. She is... And therefore, she's okay. Um, again, it's... It's the charter. Like, she's, she's... She's part of the contract. It's okay. Right? Um, she is... She, too, has sort of signed the contract. Or the... Uh, um, or basically, the magic has signed a contract <coughs> with her at birth. Again, in that baptism ritual. Um... You'll notice, remember, they didn't think that is the sort of gypsy troupe um, who were doing the baptism. At the beginning, the mother dies, the baby's born, both are dead. They're very surprised about the baptism thing, right? They're surprised. They're surprised that the baptism takes. Why does the baptism... Why are they surprised, and why does it take...
0: I'm it high is because if the baby is dead and they're trying to baptize it, when it would it either lead to like a corrupted mark or when it wouldn't work? It
1: would fail because the contract couldn't be fulfilled. Yeah, the baby's, the baby's dead. And a person keeps confidently saying, let do the baptism. Um, why? They know dead when they see it. And Morrison's like, don't don't tell me about it. Don't try to lecture me about death, okay? What state is the baby in? Is the baby dead?
0: More or less. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, the baby is... Define that. Define dead. Define death in this book. Erin?
0: Well, she was starting to head through the gates, so that kind of She's on her way out. The
1: baby's spirit is in death. That means, in most cases, the person is dead. But there is clearly, in this world, this state of mostly dead. (laughs) That is, when are you all dead? And I can't help but use the famous vocabulary. Yeah.
2: When you've gone through the ninth
1: gate. When you've gone through the ninth gate, game over. Right? There are nine gates within death, we're told. And the souls pass through the gates sequentially, deeper and deeper down into death. When the soul passes through the ninth gate, that's it. There's no return from the ninth gate. The baby's soul is still up in the first realm of death. And he brings it back. And he knows he can bring it back. The mom just died at almost the same time. Where's her soul?
0: She's somewhere past the fourth gate, I think he said.
1: Yeah, he knows where she is, but she's... she's, He's going to let her go. Because she's way down already. Her soul is like on the fast track to the ninth gate. But the baby's still hanging out there, and so he's just going to go bring the baby back. In other words, one of the things that I find most interesting and most complicated about this book is that we have not one, but two different border situations here, two different realms with a boundary between them, the Old Kingdom and Ancelestiaire, and life and death. And of the two of them that is of those two border situations, the Ancelstier Old Kingdom border is the one that in many ways looks more like the kinds of, of terra incognita that we've seen before, um, that is, places like, um, like Narnia, um, places like Ferry that Smith goes to. But the border between life and death in some ways operates has many of the aspects that we've seen about these other borders and other stories, right? There's no geographical boundary to death. Um, they cross into it all over the place. Apparently, that when I say they, I mean Abhorsen and Sabriel, apparently at will, or almost at will, can pass into death, wherever they are. Um, they can bring things back. Things get, things cross themselves at some points, it seems. Um, they can be brought out. Um, and time also is a little bit funny. Um, I love the, the, the fact that you know, the, the, the different seasons, the, the almanac that Sabriel has, um, it's not that time operates exactly completely differently in the Old Kingdom and Ancestier, but they're not on the same. They're not on the same chronological system. Um, you, need, uh, you need two separate almanacs because the, 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 the weather is different. And we get also this sort of pseudo-Narnian effect, right, where we go into the Magic Kingdom and we find that it's winter there. And although we're not told that it's always winter and never Christmas, it sure seems like it's always winter over there and it's hard to imagine Christmas. Uh, under the circumstances that we find uh, when Sabriel finally crosses the border, Aaron?
0: I find it interesting that whenever Sabriel and her father come back from death, they are they bring like winter with them. They have icicles, and yes. they're freezing, and they're they're bringing even when she does it and she's in the old kingdom and it's already cold. It's she brings back even an even colder cold something colder from death.
1: Yes, yes. At- this, this kind of absolute cold is associated with when somebody when a necromancer in their spirit goes into death, their body ices over, like ice crystals form around their body and they warm up after they come back though um, so they're usually still kind of chilled um, and we're told that, that death itself is cold. What does the first zone look like? As I mentioned before, of course, the abhorsons are in a, are in a different category. What's their job? They are, in one sense, necromancers. Necromancers are the only other category of people who use magic that we're given, other than charter mages. Right? We're introduced first to charter mages, and later we're told about necromancers. Um, how are how is the abhorson different from other necromancers, as he explains it? What does a necromancer do, like a garden variety necromancer? Liz.
0: Um, Back from
1: the gates. yeah necromancers sort of by definition are the ones who they, the ones who cross that boundary who cross from life into death while they're still alive and have by the power of their magic which is by and large free magic um, have the power to bring things back with them to bring the dead the spirits of the dead back into life not in a benevolent way uh, preserve the life of this baby kind of way um, but in the like form a malicious zombie army kind of way um, that's what that's what necromancers do um, what does the abhorson do? yeah, Brittany? He,
0: he lays them back to rest
1: yeah, his job is to like, re-kill things right? <laughs> Um But again, if we think about it in the terms that we see before, we can see that these terms are pretty consistent. That is, he's reestablishing order. Dead things walking around in life, that's messy in lots of ways, right? He reestablishes order. Let's put the dead things in death and keep the living things in life, and everybody will be happy. Um, He goes around undoing. The job that necromancers do. He can cross over into death, and he does cross over into death, um, but not to do what necromancers do, but to do the reverse. Yeah? I feel like one of the major themes of okay. this
3: book that Ed Morrison and, by extension, the charter of mages really buy into is a, kind of a place for everything and everything in its place and value. You've got to make sure the wall lines up over that's over here. We got life over here, and
1: let's write down where supposed to be and make sure it stays there. It's all very like it's OCD magic. <laughs> 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 oh, it's very, yeah. It's very zoned. And even the the old kingdom ancestor thing. I mean, I, Kelly mentioned before, and it's certainly important. We have technology over here and magic over here, and the other things don't work in the border. There's this kind of nebulous zone. Magic will work. Kind of pretty close to the old kingdom border though it's not quite the same as in the as in the old kingdom um, technology will sometimes work on the border but not always dependably um, and there's just no if you bring a magically constructed thing way over into incelstire it won't last the magic will fade, but if you if you bring te- a technologically produced thing. Not, not just a piece of technology. We're not just talking about, like, your cell phone won't work if you go over into into the Old Kingdom, like you'll get no reception or something. Um, it will disintegrate. Um, do you remember the emphasis, the uh, passport that she has? How is her passport made? Yeah, it's do you remember? Yeah. Emma, do you remember? It's like...
0: Hand-drawn
1: on handmade paper with like a hand press on a press. Yeah. Yeah, mass-produced paper off a regular printing press isn't going to survive. It's just going to disintegrate over in the old cable. Yeah, Jordan?
2: Um, when the soldiers' dog tags are found after the journey took it down, it's not just that they're, they're melted into slag, they turn into the ash. Away.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: and, and she realizes
1: afterwards, oh, man, he had dog tags, which I should have checked, first of all, and second of all, and there's no way I could get them now. Um, I mean, dog tags are, survive, are designed to survive fire. That's one of the points of them. But um, not Charter Magic Fire, um, because they are technologically produced things um, from from Sales Air. This is one thing I have to say. I don't... It's one of my least favorite parts of the book because I think it's, it's, it's not very – anyway, for me, maybe there is a, a, an explanation that I haven't thought of, but it doesn't seem to me terribly well thought out, the sort of cause and effect of all of this. That is, technology, like how do you define technology? Like, you know, the letterpress, printing press is a piece of technology. You know, ask a 14th century person whether they thought that was technology or not. Um, of course it's technology. Everything <coughs> is technology. Banging two sticks together is technology. Um, so, like, how do you define it exactly? Are we talking about stuff made with, with electricity? Is electricity the problem? I, just, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't see exactly how it works. I don't see the mechanism. Um, but, uh, I mean, I don't... Though the fact that I feel like I should... I think, speaks to, Mac, what you were describing before about the kind of orderiness of things. But, uh, yeah, Can I... The
0: emphasis, I think, seems to be on the idea of mass production uh, versus, you know, like, the individual craftsmanship, mm-hmm. I guess, of, like, one, like, beautifully constructed passport with a hand-drawn sketch and everything.
1: And maybe. Maybe. So, so then if somebody, like, personally hand-smelted like a beautiful Gatling gun... <laughs> what, you know, after years of careful and loving labor and Then you can use that sucker as a border and blow those dead things away <laughs> Maybe, I mean, it sometimes works Like, they have machine guns, which occasionally work I don't know, yeah, thought experiment <laughs> what do you think? I, I think that it's an oversimplification
3: to say technology works here and doesn't work here I think it's more like the laws of physics are slightly different, which is also why magic works over here and doesn't work over there. And anything that relies on... And we don't know which laws are different, because that would be a pain for, you know, to right now. <laughs> like the bells, but for a whole book. Yeah. But, yeah. but yeah. anything that relies on those particular laws of physics that don't work uh, in the old kingdom falls apart. but anything that relies on other laws.
1: You know, that's what I want to be true. Um, and I'm willing to... Like I'm, am fine with it. I'm willing to go along. But again, think, thinking in, in, in Tolkien's vocabulary, this is the, that's the place where I have to suspend disbelief. Um, I can I can invest the whole rest of it with secondary belief and get into it. But when you know, like mass-produced paper starts disintegrating in, a, in the Old Kingdom, I'm I'm I'm, I'm, I'm actively suspending disbelief because I don't within the world that Nix has created. I don't see why that happens, and I don't understand. Uh, it's not like a law that I have to understand it, but um, uh, know. just throwing that out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that part of it might be that the Old Kingdom seems suspended
3: in time, sort of, at least in regard to technology, and it seems
0: kind of timeless. While um, Antioch stairs progressed to the point where it looks like uh, 20th century United
3: Kingdom, mm-hmm. um, the Old Kingdom's been around all that time. there has been relations between Nancy Sarah and the Old Kingdom and yet the Old Kingdom has not moved on at all. Mm -hmm. I think that that might be part
1: of why that stuff just can't exist in the Old Kingdom. (laughs) And therefore you would connect it to time, essentially? Or another way in which, in a sense, time is different over there? I mean, that's an interesting theory and I think that seems to... That... I I, I can work with that. Um, (laughs) We never get, we never get from Garth Nix a, like, creation story. Like a, here's how Anselstia and the Old Kingdom came to be, and why they're next to each other. We don't, we don't get the whole backstory. You know, we're like, here it is, this is the situation, now let's move forward. And again. And I'm fine, that's okay, it's fine. Like, I don't insist on it. Um... But yeah, but it it's, it leads to some of those things that I don't understand. Yeah, George.
2: Um, I was going to say I think I, I've always had trouble with this, but Kelly's comment about the the, the mass produce being an issue, I think it's just something. You can't make a contract with a whole batch of people at once that have the same weight as you personally negotiate with every single person who uses their terms. It, it's about the charter. The charter does not accept this. This you, you got this dag, dog tag from someone else. Got it from a completely different place, but they stamp out tons of dog tags with your name on it. Input it from a little list. Yeah, yeah,
1: I, yeah. I mean, there's certainly the baptism <coughs> moment. Certainly does suggest a kind of that kind of a personal connection, that kind of a, a, a sort of. Well, I, yeah, a sort of intimacy with somebody. I mean, even the fact that the, the mark is on the individual forehead, and it's not. I'm not sure that it's the same mark on everybody's forehead, um, but anyhow, it, they don't actually talk about the other than the fact that there's a charter mark there. Um, they don't actually really talk about that that much, but anyhow, um, that yeah, that's interesting. I think I I, I think that that, that would kind of work. Yeah,
3: uh, I think that uh, we can interpret that as saying that in the old kingdom, existence of inanimate objects is at least partially powered by belief and connection between them and the an intelligent beings, and so that's that, like if you're really connected to this thing and you know it well and you understand it, then it can maintain existence across the border. Whereas if it was just handed to you one day and some someone else made it without any particular connection to them either, and you know it was just stamped out as you say that it, it it loses that particular thing that it needs to in order to hold on to existence. It's kind of a weird thing to base existence on, but that you know, seems consistent with what we've seen so far.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely possible. I mean uh, the other way magic just flat doesn't function um, if you go very far. Now, it does function across the border a bit, but only for a little geographical distance, we're told. If you go further down into Encelstier, magic, magic isn't going to work at all. You can wiggle your fingers and make a charter mark in the air, and it's not going to do anything. Um, so there seems to be that kind of an absolute relationship between the charter and the old kingdom. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. One of the effects of the wall uh, that is, of uh, the, the idea of the wall. Um, first of all, it's, it's very evocative. Um, if, you, if you lived in England, what would you be thinking of? This wall? Wait, wait what cardinal direction? What does the... Is, 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 like when you're pointing towards the wall, what direction are you pointing? North. North. Okay. north. It's to the north. So there's this wall that goes across the country... To the north, what are we thinking of?
0: I was trying to explain this to my mom last night, and I've said that it's kind of like if England or Scotland built a wall, or if we built one with Canada and we were worried about magical <coughs> Canada's- <laughs> <Canadians. laughs> <laughs> I, I can't Coming down and invading us.
1: Yes, in, in America this doesn't quite work so well, as we've never really had that relationship with the Canadians before. Um, I, I don't think there are very many Americans who have ever longed in uh, anxiety and fear to construct a large wall to protect against the evil day when the Canadians might choose to see <laughs> uh, But, but in English history, we're long, long familiar oh. with this impulse. the right <laughs> right uh, Adrian's Wall. Adrian's Wall. Yeah, they, 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 they exist. I mean, they didn't The Romans did. Right? Um <laughs> You can still see bits of Adrian's wall. Yeah. Um, and so I mean, I think it's, it's, we have this model for it. And the directions really seem to me to kind of bring that home, that you get this idea, you know, in the north, above the wall, is this unknown land where strange and unknown things, and civilization is south of the wall. And we need to protect, not just like protect ourselves and protect our but like protect civilization itself. Uh, from because you never know when like they might try to come over in force, um, and we have to keep them at bay. Yeah,
0: one of my favorite moments with the, the wall part is when um, the the bus full of tourists come to see the wall, and it's like this war zone, and its soldiers are going back and forth, and they're being careful. And then oh, I picture these you know floral shirts, big cameras, like oh look at this wonder, and all the soldiers are like no, no, not. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, st- and when because they, they, they think she's with the tour at first, right? <laughs> yeah. stay, go over to that tower. <coughs> stay the, stay away from here. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, this is an active frontier. Um, yeah, and I couldn't help but think of Hadrian's well I don't know that Nix was necessarily thinking of that, but I can't help but think of that. Um, it's certainly, uh, uh, it's certainly a suggestive kind of parallel. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about death. Whom do we meet in death? We've met several people in death, um, and I want to you'll notice, of course, in today's class, one of the primary things I'm trying to do is kind of lay the groundwork, see that, make sure that we understand all the vocabulary uh, as much as we can anyway at this point, and begin to see some of the sort of major themes and major interests which seem to underlie the framework. Uh, of the story here, and then of course next time we will get more into the story of Sabrio herself, but yeah, Erin?
0: We meet, well we kind of meet her father, we meet his messenger and <laughs> her immediate thought is, he's stuck I have to save him, yes. which is the exact opposite of what her father has been trying to teach her all this time about you know, laying the dead to rest, she's like he's stuck, I, he can't be dead he's just stuck and I have to help him
1: Yeah, now She has some reason to think he's... If he were in the same position as her mom was right after her... Okay, my pronouns pronouns are getting mixed up. If... All right. If Sabriel believed that Abhorsen were in the same place or in the same state that Sabriel's mother was after Sabriel's birth, then truly it would be not only wrong-minded but completely useless to go chasing it because she was on... You know, there's, there's, a, there's a river, there's a current in death. And she was, you know, she was gone. She was taken off. If she believes, if Sabriel believes that, that that's where Abhorsen is, you know, when she's like, he, he's, he's down in the lower parts of death and speeding his way towards the ninth gate, then, you know, first of all, you're already out of time. And second of all, apparently, if Abhorson's judgment is any illustration, it's not the right thing to do. To go chasing after and trying to, to bring her back under those circumstances, or to bring her father back, but she concludes that he's either dead or trapped. And that's the, the second, thing. of course, she's afraid that he's dead, um, but but uh, but she's sort of what, the reason she's pursuing is she's afraid he might be trapped. Why? Why does she think that? What leads her? Can you follow her reasoning? Why she believes he might be trapped? He might actually be being held somewhere in death. We, yeah, can I go ahead? Um,
0: in the prologue we get, and I, don't, I guess I don't know how much of that information uh, Sabriel is, is privy to seeing as she was baby-bitty-baby baby at the time, right. but there are nasty things in yeah. the gates that, are sort of, that seem to be dragging people under yeah. when they shouldn't be.
1: yeah. So we, 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 we see clearly that there are powerful and malevolent things that live in death. And so certainly it seems perfectly plausible that something might try. We saw, we saw her little infant spirit captured briefly um, by the spirit Karagor. Um, now, so again, could somebody have captured him? That seems possible. Um, could somebody be holding him? Yeah, that seems possible too. Um, now, why does she what leads her to think that that has occurred?
0: Yeah. He sent the bell because I, I guess I noticed it with she says the creature had the sack. Yes. She not. She was not even surprised as the, she was even more surprised as the creature suddenly bent forward and plunged into the water hand searching for the sack. Yes. So it's this idea that that shouldn't actually exist in death and for some reason it does.
1: Yes. This this thing is bringing the whole point of the dead spirit that she meets the one that's in like the common room of the dorm, right? Um, With this with the sack, this is like you know the RA's nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Another dead spirit come to terrorize the dorm. Um, That's our our student affairs training does not include necromancy, so if this (laughs) happens, let's just hope this doesn't happen. Uh, But anyway. so it's, it, it's in the and she sees it with the sack, right? And then she goes into death and sees it there, and it still has the sack. And she's surprised by that. It's a messenger. And to bring her, and what's in the sack? The sword and the bells. It's the sword and the bells. The two central, the, the two primary is it, weapons, tools of the his, his His magical sword and his set of bells. Yeah.
0: Um, it could be a sign that he's stuck, and I think it is. But it could also, at the same time, be a sign that he is dead. It's like the, the passing of the torch. He's like here, here are my tools. Um, go forth, you know.
1: So right. But at the time when he sends it, he sends it. He's in death. She knows he's in death. How does she know that? She sees the thread. You remember the thread? The messenger has this black thread coming out of its back and going towards the gate that is going towards deeper in death. She knows it is being held, it is being manipulated. It's like an automaton being sent by something that is enslaved to something which is at the other end of that thread, which is lower in death. And when it speaks with her father's voice, she knows it's her dad who's controlling it and who's sending it. Now, therefore, she so she knows for a fact he's down there in death. And he's sending her the bells and the sword, which means, A, he's... Probably not going to be using them anytime soon. And also, B, she has hope that he's not dead, because if he were like in the current fast track to the ninth gate, he's not going to have time to hang around and send things to anybody. Um, so it's actually like a, a fair, like, she knows he's there, she knows he needs help, and she knows that he uh, is apparently not emerging himself. Anytime sooner, he'd just keep his bells and sword to use himself. Okay. Thank you today for your patience. See you on Monday.
0: That's all for this time. Next time is chapter 6 through 11 of Sabriel. Thanks for listening and Godspeed.